How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show Podcast, episode 187. Nope. Yes. No. no. How yeah. are you, Jake? <laughs> you're, you're not biting into that. Nope. I just fed you a steak on a silver platter. And, and, you went... s- and you know what you said? Nope. Damn it. See, now you played into it. Yeah. You're calling me a liar. Yeah. Chemistry is not on point today. We're out of sync. I know. <laughs> but that's okay. Are you good? We were slow. I'm good. Are you good? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Should be a drinking game every time. I really hope... Are you I really, good? I know. Yeah. I really hope this is someone's first podcast of us. Yeah. And yeah. they're like, man, these guys suck. Oh, no. <laughs> um, well, I'm good. That's um, good. To quote um, Coulier's character... Um, from Nope. I'm good. Um, oh, yeah. I see, I see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the second most used phrase in the in the film. Yeah. I actually, not to get into it straight away, but I found that very interesting is there's sort of an equal amount of usage of, of the, the Nope and the agreement, as in yes and... Mm. Well, the, the Nope is in the denial and yes in the agreement, and obviously mm. there's different variations of no, Nope, nah... And then yes, yep. I guess yep's the equivalent of nope. Yep. But <laughs> we'll get into it. But uh, So you're good, Jack? I'm good. Yeah. Yes. I'm not going to say nope this time. Okay. <laughs> Have you got a piece of trivia for me? I, well, I do. I do. I'm going to start. I, there's quite a few things. It's a Jordan Peele there film. Is. Of course, there's, there's plenty of little bits of trivia. Yeah. But there was one thing I was thinking during a few specific scenes, particularly with a certain monkey on screen. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, oh. it took me back, obviously, to, to Planet of the Apes. And yes. Obviously, the um, the wonderful performance performance of Caesar. And um, I was wondering, I was like, I wonder if, like, they're going to lean into this anyway. I'm going to look up some trivia. And it turns out, it wasn't quite the trivia I was expecting, but it does talk about how uh, it was Terry Notary, I think Terry Notary, who actually played Gordy, who also played Rocket in the rebooted Planet of the Apes. That's a Caesar's kid, isn't it? Rocket. I, Yeah, maybe one of his kids. Mm. Is that the third film? I'm trying to remember what the name of his kid is. In the younger kid. No, the one in... <laughs> I put up no, Caesar obviously, Jr. for a second. No, because obviously <laughs> the, the baby is Cornelius, I'm pretty sure. Um, right, which is obviously the, the third one. reference to Cornelius in the original. Um, But the young, the kid, the adolescent one, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I see what you mean. And then in the in the third film, Rocket's a bit older. Yeah. I think that's what. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's been a minute because I saw Dawn recently. We talked about this. Yes, but um, it. I. You're right. It might have been the baby. The yeah. baby. I have baby. to double check it. <laughs> but no, it's I thought that was cool trivia because that, that's. I was sort of like, oh, is this Andy Circus playing him? But uh, alas, yes. it wasn't. But it was close. Well, Tamira. Your talk about Gordy. Mm. My fact has to do with sort of his co-starring sitcom partner, Jupiter, who oh. uh, is played by Stephen Yoon. Yes. And a funny little Easter egg, which maybe suggests that we're going to see the Peel expanded universe, maybe. Okay. <laughs> but an intro to a scene in which... Um, what's Coolie's character's name again? Uh, OJ. OJ, yeah. There's yeah. a whole thing about that. I right? know. Yeah. <laughs> um, when OJ goes into, we get introduced to Jupiter's character. We yeah. notice a particular pair of scissors on Jupiter's oh. office. Certain golden scissors. 
a bit of a throwback. Yeah, I didn't to, notice that. That's cool. To us. Um, obviously, his previous film and obviously having Coulier in this film calls back to his first film, which we covered last week on the show. Yeah. There you go. We did mention that last week. Is It sort of feels like we're wrapping up a trilogy here between Get Out, Us, and Nope. Uh, but in terms of it being an interconnected trilogy, you might mm. be onto something there. Yeah. I like it. But Zeke, this film is obviously way too new to be on your 1100 films. You must watch at least once in your lifetime poster. Would you put it on that poster? Well, to go with the title of the film, <laughs> Nope. I would agree with you. I mean, it's going to be an interesting conversation. Beautiful. Before we get into that, Jake, mm. what have you caught in the last week? I know you got uh, some big news. Big news. Well, I don't know. You're, you're one of your favorite shows of all time is wrapping up soon. It is tomorrow. We're going to get into that in the coming of streaming, but um, I'm very sad, very depressed about the end of Better Call Saul. It's time. I, you know, I I remember this because I'm gonna I'm going to a couple of friends' house tomorrow afternoon to watch the final. You're episode. gonna cry. I've, if, okay, I'm going to say, if I didn't cry in this most recent episode, I don't know what this show can do to make me cry. I thought about this a lot, because I'm not a big crier watching movies and shows and stuff. There's a few I can point to. I cried watching Marley and Me. I cried watching the <laughs> the Breaking Bad, uh, not Breaking Bad, the Prison Break movie they did, which is even cheapened further by the fact that Michael never actually died in that movie. Um, but the way they did it, I thought was very clever. You sort of linger on the door, will he, won't he? But you know he won't because you, you've already jumped ahead in the timeline. But I, I was very clever, and I cried during that. I cried during the Florida Project every time. So there's movies that do make me cry. Episodes of Futurama mm-hmm. and Simpsons. It'll do it. But I've for how much I love Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, I've never cried watching it. I don't have that kind of emotional resonance in terms of the the story, yeah, I guess shock and awe, I think, is what Breaking Bad yielded. Like I can't remember mm. a time I got like you know the moments like in Face Off or sure in was it Ozymandias? I think like, Ozymandias you could easily make a case is very upsetting. Yeah, there's a lot of things that happen in that episode that just are traumatizing. But I don't cry. Yeah, which is interesting. And like I love the character of Kim Wexler. One of the greatest characters in all of television, in my opinion. Not that I'm a huge TV watcher. We're going to get into that in a minute. But, like, I had... Like, the combination of her character's emotional arc hit last week. And it is devastating. But I didn't cry. And I think this is something about those two shows in particular where I'm sort of removed from that. There's so much appreciation for the art of those shows that I'm almost removed from the emotional resonance and empathy of the characters. It's I know I've seriously thought about this a lot. You're looking too and far beyond uh, what's put in front of you. I just I don't know. Like, what is it about the Florida Project, which I also think is like a fantastic piece of filmmaking, that just breaks me? That makes me feel so much empathy for the characters. I just start bawling my eyes out. But that Better Call Saul, a show that I love with all my heart, can't do it. I just don't know what it... It's this weird it, cognitive it, dissonance there's here. A, there's probably an aspect to it that's to do with the fact that you're so... You know, especially when we're talking about Saw, it's like mm. you're there looking at names of episodes and deconstructing. <laughs> and I think that that plays I'm into it. Every week, I, I yeah. think... And this happened a couple of years ago when Game of Thrones was at its height of its popularity. Mm. Is I feel like... The Red Wedding throws anyone that doesn't know what they're getting into sure. with, with it, and it leaves you emotionally shook. Mm. 
But then the idea of surprise, especially at the back end of the show, where it's like, look, we know people are going to die. Right. Because we're in the last eight episodes. Maybe there's that sense of inevitability there that we can't ever remove ourselves, that we know mm. that we're getting to the end of the line. And and we know that like we almost look too far beyond the narrative that's put in front of us. We're looking at it too reflexively, maybe. Um, I, think, I think you're right to a point with the... Like, I do look up the IMDb's. I'm so, like, analytical about how... Where the show's going to go and how the story's told. I'm so invested in how the story's told more than the story itself. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's interesting in its own right. But part of that is my fascination with the timeline and the fact that it is connecting to timelines established in previous shows. I mean, now all bets are off. Now it's all just, like, yeah. post-Breaking Bad, like, character wrap-up and, and, and um, not evolution but those are different types of um, emotional manipulation too that yields that sort of crying that yeah when like when hank dies in breaking bad you're right. saddened by losing a great character mm. but there was that sense of inevitability there sure and it's a different type compared to something like watching a child be removed from their sort of underperforming mother right yeah I, mother i think you're right in the sense that I'm not watching the Florida projects like with that level of attention to detail. Yeah. How are they going to tell this story? I mean, that, I mean that, I'm that, watching it just engrossed in the that's story. That's tapping into a habitual emotional thing that mm. is inescapable for the human psyche, no matter what, because it's animalistic. Whereas watching a really likable FBI, like a DEA right. agent, be killed in a in a drug, you know, you're saddened by losing the character. But this was the the thing this was the boiling point with, right. with Breaking Bad. We knew characters were going to die eventually, and 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 especially by the time you get to Hank's death, when you look at Ozymandias, it's sad. But at that point, we've seen like you know Gus die and Mike die, mm. and um, well, sorry if you didn't know any of these. No, but, but this but has been part, to your point. A part of it is like a lot of Better Call Saul is about though their essential characters. And they have moments in the last few episodes of Soul where obviously they don't die. We know they're not going to die. But they have storylines that I can see being emotionally resonant to people because there's other things at play in yeah. terms of their humanity. It and, could just be a matter of you constantly being so super fanned by it. That you're I, I think you're right in the sense that the I'm so focused on how they tell the story yeah, um, and so fascinated by those decisions that I'm sort of almost removed from the emotionality of it. I generally think that's it. Yeah. Because I think, in terms of Kim's fate, and I won't, obviously won't spoil any of that, because I know you need to see the show, but I'm, I was so, from week to week, I'm, I'm just in my head trying to rack up all the different possibilities based yeah. on where we know the show goes with Breaking Bad, what, what's already occurred prior, what makes sense in between, and I can rely on what makes sense because these writers are really good, yeah, and they're not going to stuff up. They've, I cannot think of one continuity thing they've stuffed up. And there's one episode left in the show. Fantastic. That is just so impressive um, for someone like me dissects it so much. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that has to be part of it. Is I'm so analytical of it and fascinated from that removed sense of it that I can't empathize with the characters. Yeah. Um, not that it's predictable in any way, mm-hmm. um, but I'm more prepared. I will say. Between those two shows, I, there's a certain death that happens in the most recent season of Soul that is very shocking, very unexpected, and I didn't, I wasn't like, I wasn't like, I didn't cry, but I was 
shocked and yeah. incredibly bummed out for weeks. Like, just bummed out. And that's something Breaking Bad couldn't even do. There you go. Which is very... just That's just something to throw out there. But speaking of television... Yes. I know we went on a big tangent there. Because Soul is ending, I'm like, i got to start more shows. <laughs> i got to start The Terror, Leftovers, like Ozark. A lot of shows i got to catch up with. Westworld, I think well, that, mm-hmm. that's uh, season four's ending this yeah. week, I believe. So... There's a lot going on there. But I, I started watching one that you have seen, Zeke. Yes. That you've talked about recently. I finally started watching The Boys. Oh, how good. The Boys. It's very good. What it's, are you up to? Um, only four episodes in. So I'm about halfway for the first season. I, I reckon this time next week... You're going to talk about I'll a show see. that like sets its tone in the first five minutes. Oh, my God, dude. And the thing about <laughs> that opening... we Everyone who's seen the show knows exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. I generally didn't expect that to be the story of the show. I know it's based in a comic and they're established characters and everything. It all makes sense now looking back. But I'm watching it being like, okay, this is all purely world building. Mm-hmm. We're going to set this scene with this character uh, who's, you know, a normal, a pleb, if you will, yeah. uh, and establish how horrible having superpowered people can be in your world through this one example of what happens to this character oh, this is going to be a main character in the story. And yep. they join what becomes the boys and their sort of um, ragtag team of anti... Yeah, I think it's Jack Quaid who plays Huey. Is just great. I um, thought it was like a young... Um, what's his name? Bill Hader. <laughs> I was like, that's Bill Hader's kid. I think it's... it's not. But... I, I think tonally... I think, look, reflectively, because obviously season three just wrapped up um, two or three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I think the first... I mean, the first season's the most bubble season, obviously. It's okay. very simple. It's it's like... The goal is very clear. I mean, you're four episodes in. Sure. It's like Huey and, and Carl Urban's um, Butcher uh, basically just trying to get to A-Train. That's, right. That, that, at its core... Well, that's... there's a wider sense of justice, but, but the key is A-Train, getting revenge against A-Train. And... Yep. Um, it obviously it does take a turn, and I have to admit that first season's really strong because Elizabeth Shue's really great in it too. Right. Um, who plays the sort of corporate? Ah, oh, yeah. Representation. Yeah, cool. She looks. She reminds me of like Elizabeth Moss's look in um, Shirley. Is that who I'm thinking of? Yeah. Sort of the um, yeah the side assistant yeah. character. Yeah, Elizabeth. I mean, yeah. It's so funny seeing like. <laughs> Was the, Everyone the looks interest, like someone. Love interest in Karate Kid is now in this. Oh, this. yeah. <laughs> I, think to, I think there's a lot to like about it. It's, mm. it, it's re- Obviously, it's very dystopic, and I have to admit the third season pushes its crudeness to levels where you're a little bit just overwhelmed by how crude it is sometimes. I know there's like the big orgy episode and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, and... That I'm anticipating. <laughs> there's definitely like, hilarity. Uh, yeah, this, I remember there's one episode in season two which you're going to find very funny but it, it there is truth in it I think like the underlying truth is it's like well if we had superheroes that were just you know the, that are these essentially they're just super beings it's right. like we would live in this world where people would get killed accidentally like it's it does have dystopian like the best dystopians are the ones that have laces of truth in them mm. and, and the fact that this corporation's monetized it is obviously it runs in parallel with another corporation <laughs> well, I, yeah i think that's what separates the show from things like you know you've got hancock and kick ass and and sort of like more grounded superhero or more not so much grounded but like just more um what's the word i'm looking for so realistic yeah realistic um nihilistic kind of nihilistic yeah. takes on superhero um fiction i guess 
and this is what separates this from th- those is the the conglomerization corporate aspect of it and the fact that it is sort of a, a super industry as they would call it and that um, supers are basically actresses getting um, you know uh, going on auditions and going for calls now they literally have a call sheet in one of the early episodes where they just pass it and that's like yeah. their superhero itinerary or whatever it is so good so, so there's a lot of like clever meta commentary about well, the film industry is why, but then, like you said, a very specific corporation that does monetize of superheroes, but then how, Absolutely. like, saving people is a priority, but it's, like, the 90th priority yeah. <laughs> for this company. And I love the twists, especially as someone going into the show. I've seen a lot of the memes, and I understand generally what the consensus of the show is, and the consensus is that Homelander is the biggest piece of shit to ever exist. So watching that first episode, and he seems like the outlier Billy Butcher says he is the outlier. He is the one hero that doesn't have dirt on him. And they obviously turn that around very quickly. But I'm like, ooh, this is interesting. I'm wondering how they're going to turn this character. And it's interesting how... The, 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 obviously, over the progression of the show, how they make him invincible on almost every facet. Because when right. you've got this character that's inkillable, like unkillable... But then you put him in an antagonistic role. Yeah. You're like, how on earth do you beat someone like this and it's uh, and it plays into obviously when you start to explore the intricacies of homelander more you you start starting to see the the inside is this it's very interesting it'll be interesting to see when you even just get to the f- end of the first season sure yeah where you sit there's some good twists um i think the first season has the best twists yeah cool um but all three seasons are really good like they don't dip yeah, like you know, we talked about Stranger Things a couple of weeks ago, and, and no one really likes season two, and or it's, I think season two is season three is probably the one where people are like, eh, I'm kind of getting sick of this. Yeah, who doesn't like season two? I feel like most people are not a big fan. Of it's season. not like I feel like people put season one on like this big pedestal of like this is just fantastic, and it is, but I don't think the dip from season one to two is that yeah. like it's still an enjoyable show. And you know you got you got the death of a very noble character in that one. Yeah. People still to this day are upset about it. But to compare it to Stranger Things, I mean, I kept making that point of their release schedule and like Netflix is so fixated on this idea of just drop it all in one day, even when it doesn't make any financial yeah. sense. When the boys season one dropped the whole eight episodes in one day, and guess what they did? Seasons two and three, they became weekly drops. Yeah, and it's like they learnt. Prime learns how works. to do that. <laughs> it works because it leads. It allow. I don't understand where this logic came from because people were allowed to sit. They didn't just talk about Stranger Things intensely for a week because mm. you watch the first volume, and by the time I got around to finishing the first volume, yeah, we were already in the second volume. So people had already stopped and and were already stopping talking about Stranger Things, whereas. You know, this weekly drop thing. It's like, yeah, sure. For your first season, drop the whole thing. See if people cling on to it. Sure, yeah. And if they do, then milk it. Because you've built the anticipation for the second season. And now you've got this formula to start peppering it out. And I tell you, in the two-month, the two month, eight-episode season three, every week I was talking with my friends about yeah. that episode. No, you and extend the, the engagement of the discussion and it's like that's what's great about network television i still think more shows should be doing that and you know to your point squid game i don't know if that would have blown up if that had started as a weekly release 
but it started as one big season. Boom, it's dropped. Yeah, it's there. There's a season People two love for it. Squid Game coming out. Yes, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Season two should be a weekly drop. Yeah. That would be a much smarter thing to do with that show. That's and Netflix true. won't do it for some reason. Yeah. And it's strange because some of the things they have brought out in weird sort of like... I remember that... Weren't there three like horror movies they put in sequential weeks? Yeah, that's really... So that's uh, Fear Street, the Fear yeah. Street trilogy. I think that's what it's called, which I, I didn't see. Ironically, <clears throat> Sadie Sink's in, in, I think, two of those or three of them. I'm not too sure. Yeah. But to your point... It's weird that they grab three individual movies, which I think is a cool idea of having like a trilogy all set ready to go and then release that weekly. But how's that any different from a TV show, especially one like Stranger Things, which is already two and a half hours on per episode? Yeah. So how is that any different? Yeah. I, that's a good point. That is so weird. <laughs> very strange. Uh, Do you catch anything else? No, no. I, that's pretty much where I'm at. I'm, I'm enjoying the the boys like you know was uh, obviously watch more and catch more i will say the one negative so far there's a few random like hmm okay episode one there's a very there's an unexplained chance meeting between two characters on a bench that pretty much sets the entire show off and i'm like it couldn't i i was just like there's literally the complete coincidence that this happened mm. that these two characters meet on this bench and talk to each other and then sets off Pretty much the entire story to unfold. Mm. I thought that was really strange. Yeah. Unless they paid off later, but anyway. No, mm, I'd break it to you. No, it's just a chance meeting. It's a bit of a contrived comic book. Because mm. uh. my thinking was, oh, this would make sense if Billy Butcher had made him go and arrange this meeting. No. But that's not the case. That's not what happened. No. So, anyway, the, there's a couple little moments like that, which... Early enough in the season is fine, I guess. Yeah. Because cause I thought about this as well. I was like, to be fair, the first episode of Better Call Saul does end with a very chance meeting between one of the between Jimmy and one of the Salamancas, which you could argue that sets off the entire train of the rest of the, the multi-series uh, storyline. But there was something about that that didn't bother me as much. I think because there were enough m- plans put in motion prior yeah. to lead to that. For here, it just felt so random. It's a it's a nitpick. That's it's fair. fine if as long as it doesn't happen like further into the story when I'm expecting more things to sort of layer on top mm. of each other. I'm I'm enjoying it, but I did notice a couple of moments like that. I was like, Oof, a bit of a chance meeting there, but especially one that's like I mean that's the key to it. I think Vince Gilligan even said that chance meetings or like coincidences aren't as bad if they mean bad things for your characters, but if it does propel the story in a positive light or like a, a necessary light, then it stands out more. I think that's, yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I think, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see your take when you've even watched all three seasons and mm. you sort of look back on the first season and, and I think those chance meetings and it definitely follows probably the most formulaic, but it kind of has to, I mean, sure. it's a revenge story yeah. at its, at its bare root. It's in its first season. It's a revenge story. And, I mean, you could argue all three seasons it's an elongated revenge story, but right. it has more layers and substance to it the longer it goes on. Yeah, cool. Um, and turns and flips and... and I, I, yeah. What, I, what I'm really curious about, because, like you said, with Homelander and these other heroes, like, they're so, like, impregnably powerful that the advantage that the boys, and that's, like, I guess the, the name of the, the group that they've... the anti-heroes they've created... Mm. Um, their big advantage is that the heroes aren't really onto them yet. 
and I'm wondering how the dynamic changes when the heroes are on something. Because you, you assume once that happens, they could probably be killed in five seconds. Yeah. So I'm wondering when that shift happens, if it happens, and what that means for the story. I'm very curious about how yeah. that all plays out. But we'll see. We'll see. Beautiful. What about well, you, Zeke? What have you been watching? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> absolutely nothing. I might have something by next week. I, I, we watch. Admittedly, we uh, last night we watched 500 Days of Summer. Ah, um, uh, yeah. Which was Lucinda's which that, first that, time that, Oh, watching. really? Nice. Um, That's a rewatch for you. You saw it back in like episode seven. Yes. Long time ago. Yeah. It's funny. The more times I watch it, the more I'm like... It's It's... A really interesting way of telling a very simple story, and I think it relies solely on its non-linear narrative structure. Yeah, and the perspective—the perspective of it all being through Joseph Gordon-Levitt's eyes—and not—and it's not intriguing because and it, it's it's so funny because we're sitting there and it's like watching Lou's reaction to ah. Oh, He's kind of annoying and not mm. realistic, and she's really like. And now it's almost like who's battling to be the more irrational, unlikable character out of the two. And I'm sitting there. I'm not disagreeing because it's mm. like, it's true. Like both of them leave the door ajar or negate the other person's opinions. It's a very ego-driven relationship, and it's funny how every time I watch it, this is, I think my third time watching it, I have a different perspective on sure who's right, who's wrong, or what this means for this relationship. And I think it, I think you're right. I think it really relies on that nonlinear structure. Otherwise, it's a pretty one-note film. It's not nearly as... Well, I feel like the whole... It relies on its stylism over substance. See, I don't know if I agree with that, because especially in more recent rewatches, it become, each time I watch it, it becomes so much more clear to me that story is just about obviously Joseph Gordon-Levitt's perspective and how we're being feed. It's not just that it's a non-linear narrative. It's an unreliable narrator telling True. us that. And I think so much of it, the whole like, you know, who's in the Ron and you know, who's the bitch in the relationship. It's like that all kind of goes out the window when you realize we're only getting one side of the story. And it's a very clear, very mm. sort of anger fueled one side of the story. Yeah. I think there's actually, a, there's a lot to break. I was, as watching it, I was like, well, there is a lot of, stuff to talk about with this mm. film you know it's not just like the manic pixie girl and, and sure. that whole discussion and and the fact that summer's actually not one of those um which i always found there's a really interesting video essay on it but it's it is interesting to see sort of you're you're right it's that unreliable narrator and and even the ending and with its contrivance and the fourth wall break it's like sure it's, it's fictionalized <laughs> to an an extent um and there are some really cool stylism it's amazing how many like almost memeable jokes come in through like okay the expectation reality oh yeah yeah <laughs> which is always funny i mean that that's a perfect example right there and it's like yeah there's expectation there's reality and the, the contrast between those two but it's also just like well how selfish is tom i think his name's tom how selfish is tom for even having that that expectation mm-hmm. and being as angry as he is for it not being fulfilled. And I think, especially as a guy, the older I get and the more times I watch it, I'm like, yeah, this is such an interesting commentary on a guy's expectation in the, within the relationship. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a great film. I think mean, it just, it pulls out so many conversations for what you're right. The actual narrative, the linear narrative story of it is just super 
clean and mm-hmm. simple of like you know these two get together and then they break up and then they move on with their lives yeah like that's all that has to be but everything else around it the way it's told non-linearly the way that tom's perspective fuels it that's what makes it such an interesting film yeah yeah that's glad, i hope Lucinda enjoyed it did she enjoy yeah. it <laughs> on the fence I okay reckon. fair enough i think um it's a very tight 90 which is nice yeah well, but that's all I watch. So, <laughs> Fair enough. Unless you have anything, Dad, we can move into our film of the week. Yeah, no, I think that uh, sounds about right. But, Jake, what are we watching? Oh, you know what? I should have just said nope. Damn it, Zeke. Ask me that again. <laughs> but ask, what are we watching? Well, no, no before that, before, when, when, when you asked if I had anything else to, 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 to talk about, can you, can, you, can you ask me that again? Can I ask you? Yeah, can you, if I have anything else. Do you else? have anything else to talk about? Nope. <laughs> I did it. Anyway, anyway, uh, this week, Zeke, on the show, we're watching Nope. Okay, uh, tell me when you see it. Do. That cloud does them all. There's something out here. What did you see? Residents in a lonely gulch of inland California bear witness to an uncanny, chilling discovery. Get it? Chilling? Because it's cloud? And, it's, like, cloud means it rains and it means it's, it's cold. close encounters. So it's meets, chilling. Uh, at least Jaws. Kind of is, though. This is totally Jaws. Wow, it's Jaws meets... <laughs> it's Jaws meets... Uh, uh, close encounters. Wow, that's crazy. It's most Spielberg... Uh, film of the modern era. Yeah. There is a Spielberg produced and co-directed film I want to mention later in the show. It's a little early to mention it. Cool. But a little tease there for everyone. But Nope is the latest Jordan Peele film. We both watched it yesterday. Yeah, we did. But we're, I'm guessing, separate. Did you see I was it? Uh, midday. Okay. Did you see it with Lucinda? Yes. Very cool. So with my mate Blake. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, we got a little, two sets of two. I, I have like to admit, you should, you'd be proud of me, Jake. Oh. So, in the opening shot, which is at um, the set television set of Gordy. Yes. Um, Not the Monkey Paw Productions train cart that it, everyone in the theatre thought was the actual movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a collection of about eight 15, 16-year-old boys behind us. Oh, no. And as the trailers were, were oh, building no. up to the film, yep. I was like, I turned to Lou and I went, if they start speaking in the first five minutes, I'm going to snap at them. Mm. And there's probably about 20 people in the cinema, and there were about eight of them. Okay, so they're, they're half the half the cinema. Yeah, so particularly like boisterous group, and they were just mm. they were they were doing things like they were like run like they were crazy. They were running mm. around. They were jumping. We were obviously in the row in front of them, off to the right. And they were like jumping. Oh, so they're behind down. you. Yeah, they're behind oh, us. Oh crap! Okay. So they're jumping. They're actually jumping down. This is when the lights are on. They're jumping. They're down. jumping down to our row, and they're like mucking around, like they're running around like headless chooks. 
feral children. We yeah. Al- we almost ran a child over on the way here. So I go... <laughs> so I go, okay, well, look, the lights are still on. I'm not going to tell them off right now. Sure. Soon as those lights go out, I see anything or I hear anything. <laughs> I'm it's putting this... And, and Lou, being like a very uh, typical, very polite English... Yep. Uh, English woman yeah. um, was like, <laughs> obviously, he's like, oh, don't don't kick up a fuss if you don't have to. Like, very like, she's not like me and you, Jake. She's sure. not a grumpy grumpy man <laughs> when it comes to which she's, we talk about how proud we were when Oliver kind. was like Oliver snapped at those kids and immediately told them off, and oh, that yeah. was a really great moment. Yeah, I'm just at that age now where it's like I I don't care if you're 15 or 50. If you're on your phone and I see it. If you're and it's continuous, like if it's a one quick pop, I'll give you a. But if it starts going up and it's up for a period of time, or I, Matt, I hate that when people literally like hold their phone up as if like showing everyone behind them, then turn the thing on, which only hap- it happened once yesterday. I like, I mean, there's like 20 minutes left in the movie. I was like, I'll let it slide. It's once like one is instant. fine. I'll give you a one. Once but if fine. I'm seeing it like five or six times, I've told 50 year old women off for it. I've, I'll tell 15 year old for it. <laughs> So the, the like shot with Gordy bit. comes up. Yes. And they start immediately cracking jokes. They're like trying to be funny. Oh my god. And they're just they're just loud. And I just immediately turn around and I do I'm, I'm gesturing now to Jake. I'm putting my arm on the seat. You, next you have to, me. to. You have to assert dominance. And I go, "Boys," I immediately put on my teacher voice. <laughs> Boys. I'm like, "If I see any phones out or any malarkey, I'll just get the manager." Malarkey. I don't think I said malarkey. I said mucking around. I actually swore at them. Oh, I, I figured. Was, I figured. Uh, but I was like, I was like, if I see anything like, like yes, I'll just yeah. get the manager. I really don't care. I'll get up in this movie and get a nothing. Nothing. For the rest of the movie. Good. Because then they were all like, oh, like, I think they must have been they, 13, 14. They freaked like, out, yeah. Because the... Uh, it is literally like that every time. As soon as there's one person that, like, they know they're annoying and they say something, they just shit their pants every and it, time. And it was funny. So every time one of them tried to arc up, the other three went, <laughs> shut up, shut up. <laughs> like they were like straight on. And the funniest thing they is someone else must have said, so terrified and, and of I you. turn back around. I don't hear anything that warrants me turning around here again yeah. for the rest of the movie. The couple in front of us and the row in front of us yeah. turn around. The boyfriend goes, oh, thanks for that, bro. And I'm like, <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. We're all here to watch a movie. And the funny thing is, clearly someone else in that cinema must have said something. You're like Homelander because in the cinema. Because one of the rare times, <laughs> Jake, one of the rare times, the actual ushers came into the cinema mm. and death stared them. One oh, walked up the left-hand good. side, one walked up the right-hand side. These two gentlemen, and they just <laughs> stared at this group. <laughs> and that was it. And that was probably about 20 minutes into the movie. And I, I said to Lou, I was like, that's the first time I've seen an usher do their job at a Hoyts in like... Yeah. <laughs> there was one time, uh, I can't remember what movie it was. I was young. I was like 10 or 11. And this dude, I can't remember if he was talking on his phone, but he was being, he was just being a complete ass. And I did run out of the cinema and told the usher, and I was surprised that they, like, identified them straight away. Yeah. Because it was a full cinema. Straight up found them, targeted them, like, went off for them. So I was like, that was, that was a good example. And it's funny but, because yeah. the reason there aren't... There used to be ushers in cinemas all the time. Mm. But obviously because Hoyts has gone, we don't need that many employees working. They then put, like, two people on at all times. Like, that Hoyts Garden City has got, like, maybe four people working. 
at like any given time. And when you've got like eight or nine cinemas, it's yeah. very hard to have an usher come in and check. No, I mean, Hoyts on... is, especially the one in Garden City is so dead now. It's a ghost town. So, so I, don't, I don't blame him. That was that was my first experience. Mm. And then the so second... that, that was our review of uh, Nope, everybody. Good night. Second half of the show. Well, I feel like the start of a review is like talk about what the cinema was like. Uh, I'm just, I'm giving I'm shouting out Jack and his us our us review. Yes. We talked about popcorn and Maltesers, and he's like, and that's our review of us. <laughs> so we're tying it all back in Zeke. So back end of the movie, mm. someone goes down to not the exit but the emergency exit at the bottom and opens the door. What? So, this is a midday screening. Someone thought the exit... So, you know how in most cinemas in Australia... and So, there's the, the door world, underneath the screen. So, there's the bunker door. So, like the door you come in. Yes. And then you go... Then there are three or four rows that go down and then the rest go up the yes. cinema. Yes. Very traditional. Pretty much everyone goes up. Everyone goes up. Yeah. Unless it's a super full cinema, then they might go down. We went down for Endgame. Yes. Because there were no seats So... Left. Some girl halfway through the movie. What the hell? I don't know if she either was doing it as a joke or she was doing it as... I think she was in the same group. There was a big group of them. She went and opened the door and then quickly closed it because it was like blinding bright white light. What the hell? Because that takes you outside, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> at, at Garden City, it's the back, the back lot. And what the hell? Yeah. They just opened it halfway through. I've never seen that before. Yeah. I was like... I was like... And I think she actually just did it as an accident because she thought it was the exit for some reason. I was like, how many times have you been to the cinema? <laughs> <laughs> it's very weird. That is, that's odd. I've never seen that happen before. Yeah. Well, my, my theatre-going experience was pl- very pleasant. Nice. That's good. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know the funny thing is I'm a full... If those kids laugh at moments where there's levity, which there are levity moments in this film. Sure totally fine it's nothing wrong you're engaging with the film in front of you the thing is they set the precedent by laughing in the opening shot which is not a funny moment at all no and the, they set the precedent that they're gonna like laugh through the whole movie regardless of like when the movie's trying yeah, to be and funny yeah one of them said like oh my god I'm so scared but like in that sarcastic like look at me I'm being brave oh so my god I just turned around and went I'm oh, done boys yeah, boys. Uh, yeah you just yeah, and the funniest <laughs> thing is fixes the whole problem for the movie yeah. You know, better to do it in the first minute yes. than to do it 30 minutes into the film. That's exactly it. Did you... the same for a Petite Maman. Yeah. First minute, I missed half the opening shot, which is a great opening shot, but it was worth it to to get this woman to get off her damn phone Yeah. and watch the rest of the movie in what peace. A, in Hoyt, I expect the phones because it's the big mainstream cinema. When I see that behaviour at Luna, I just want to yeah. throw something. You should be allowed to throw stuff. This was like a Mother's Day event French subtitled movie and like a 60 year old woman on her phone the opening shot and I I gave it like a good two minutes she was just typing away just typing like writing a big old text maybe a breakup message I don't know yeah but I'm like I'm the not only time you're allowed to get this. your phone out at a cinema is there is not a single other soul sitting in it and even then you're still a bit of a tosser <laughs> <laughs> I, I I try very hard to just Always put the phone. Doesn't matter if I'm watching at my desk, my room, or I just don't the cinema. Understand. And they're there. Just they've got like, they've got loads of popcorn and Maltese and stuff. So their parents are paying 
a lot of money yeah. to go to the cinema. Oh god, nowadays that's like four hundred dollars <laughs> worth of food and movie tickets. So for those d- disgusting children. Overall, but, wasn't a bad viewing experience after that moment. Though. That's good. So. Other than those two examples. Yes, that's fair enough. Now, nope. <laughs> now, nope. Zeke, <laughs> what do you think of nope? Um. My, you know what? So Lucinda and I had a good conversation. It is really nice. We've always talked about this. It's so nice mm. going with another person that you can just bounce off ideas with. And yeah, for sure. We've loved doing that for years now, and it's uh, it's nice to watch a movie and then have the conversation. And we both have came into this film. We've watched both his. We both watched Us and and Get Out. Oh, wonderful! And Lou really likes Us. Yeah. Not the biggest fan of Get Out, and I really like Get Out but not the biggest fan of us. So mm. that's we, interesting. Yeah. Cause there is, I feel like there's a very clear trajectory in Jordan pills. Uh, the way he tells a horror story. I mean, there's a trajectory between these three films. We yeah. I've got it. a, I'm really interested to pick the philosophical aspects of this film mm. because this film, in my opinion is the most, well, it's definitely not, it's the least, Political, overtly political, mm. at least. It's the most abstract of um, these films, I feel like. And it's it definitely leans into that Jaws vibe. It, it has the entertainment aspect there, the blockbuster, mm. the big set piece, the collection of a group of misfits in which a old mentor on their final <laughs> voyage. I mean, mm. it, you know, it's it, it is quite interesting. Um, because you, you, especially when you look at the epilogue of the film, sorry, the prologue of the film, and you basically like you feel like we're going to be jumping into another Peel horror set, and I don't think that's what we get. Right. Not in the not in the same vein that Us and Get Out gives us, which are way overtly horror films. Yeah, I think Us is probably the most overt horror film. Yeah, or the most clear. Um, inspired horror film and then get out as of it. we talked about it a lot last week but i feel like it's using a lot of those horror codes and conventions we're familiar with to tell a story about race but this film you're right it doesn't feel like an overt horror that's why i compared it to jaws not because of all the comments that people are like oh this did to film cloud spotting what jaws did to to the ocean um but more just the structure of it of how it it halfway through it just starts turning into more of an action film it's more mm. of an exciting blockbuster like you said and Spoiler alert, they kill the cloud much like they kill the shark. It eats an in- explosive mm. <laughs> and implodes. So I thought that was quite a funny it's connection. A, and it's a really fat, it's a fascinating thing to talk about because it's obviously you take something and 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 the monster or, or the or the cloud in this situation is it's quite angelic mm. and kite like and it's well, it starts out in this like saucer, this very familiar shape, and you talked about, um, you know, encounters of the, the close kind. It's close close encounters of close, the third close kind. Close encounters of third. Geez, I got those words yeah. mixed up. Um, but you compare it to that, and in terms of the sci-fi iconography, a lot of it's there, and it's really cool. But you're right; it does turn from this like very, um, sharply shaped saucer mm. into a, basically a jellyfish. <laughs> Has yeah, that transformation? I, I, the I was of the mind that it's turning into almost, and 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 this sort of grounds it in its science fiction values that it turns into almost um, one of those um, to quote blind spotting one of those mm. almost those ink projectiles 
that has oh, yeah, a, a ever-changing yeah. figure or, or perceptile changing. So yeah. it was the perception of that because its shape changes so erratically mm. that it goes from this, uh, like we said, this more substantial, easy-to-identify UFO yeah. into something that's inconceivable to the eye. And I definitely think that's a deliberate choice, that the sure. alien has this... Uh, form that we understand versus this form we don't. We don't actually know how it really consumes right? by the end. Well, we kind of... We, we get sh- the one visual... Well, there's a few visuals, but there's one in particular inside the thing when it's sucking up the whole audience. Everyone's going through the esophagus tunnel. So there's there's a... There's a it's an interesting You kind of get an idea of what's happening in there. But it's not clear, is it? It's like... It almost looks like a character's wrapped in a collection of blankets. Right. <laughs> like... <laughs> But yeah, I mean that definitely that that's the visual. It's not incredibly used to achieve the shot, but like I, I guess your mind fills in the blanks because my mind's filling in the blanks of oh, there's some sort of like they're almost getting sucked up into a fan. It's like Willy Wonka almost, and that's why a lot of it like it's dripping blood and all these cut up pieces afterwards. So I feel like there is an element of fitting the pieces mm-hmm. together, um, part of the unknown, I suppose. Yeah, but I think of the wider themes. It's interesting because I, I very much enjoyed it while watching this film. I mean, me and Blake had a big discussion afterwards and he was not a fan of it at all. He brought up a lot of things that I don't disagree with him in terms of character motivation. It's a film that could have benefited with about 20 minutes less, I think. I definitely think it could have been shorter, which which is ironic. 40 an hour 50 would have been really nice. Right. Just something tighter. Sure, I think that third act climax... Like, you look at something like Top Gun Maverick, where it's like, that builds to its third act so well mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter how long that action scene is, you're invested the entire time. And I think this suffers a little in that, because I don't think it... I, I don't think this film does a good enough job at, A, connecting all of its ideas into one big cohesive one. I know there is an idea, a cohesive idea that is meant to be that. I don't know if the film does it overly successfully. We'll get into mm. that. And the other thing is the, the characters. I... I can't really... It's hard to talk about these characters because they're pretty blank slates. And I don't think that's a problem in and of itself. You're going to compare it to Jaws. Like, those characters are very well-rounded. Here, they're a bit more like archetypes. They set up this idea of, like, their family legacy of, like, their the, their family has a name to uphold in terms of film history and mm-hmm. history of cinematographer and the fact that... Is it May Maybridge that you know got the first May uh, Hayfield Hayfield? Excuse me, yes. you know, got the first Haywood. collection. No, Hayward, sorry, Hayward, the first uh, collection of images to simulate a motion picture. That that whole phrase. There's uh, an African American man yeah. riding a horse. I and... love all that setup, but then I'm very quickly forgetting the motivation for capturing this saucer, other than to get rich and famous, which is not really to do with upholding the family name, which I think is a much more obvious motivation they should have gone with. There's a few random things like that where I'm just I'm a little confuffled, where it di- I don't think it nailed down those motivations well. I think especially in that big bloated third act, which you're right, I think should be the whole mm. film should be shorter. I'm kind of losing the plot a bit there, and the plot's meant to be simple enough that you're just enjoying the ride, the big action spectacle of it all. I get that, but looking back, I'm like that's I feel like that's kind of a big problem with this film is I don't think any of the character motivations were strong enough to inform me with this big journey. Now, have you looked up into what sort of the big analog of this film is meant to be? No, I was going to more pick your brain about okay. it. Okay. Well, if, if you want to jump into it first, because I sort of had my understandings of what was happening 
versus what Jordan Peele is talking about in a wider sense. And I don't know if those connect all that well, but I'll, I'll like to hear yeah, your I interpretation first. I think there's, a, there's an emphasis on the sort of taming of nature aspect mm. is a is sort of an overt one and yep. and sort of this lack of control that we have and i definitely think there is a, a slight like there was a sub dialogue and and even reviewing one of the pieces of, of trivia sort of confirmed my thing where it's mm. Definitely got that essence of Django Unchained in the sense that it's trying to give us this cowboy protagonist that's African American, mm. even in, but more importantly, not so much in the fictionalized uh, Tarantino lens, but in a right. grounded contemporary twenty first century American way. I got Django at the very end as well, sort of the big hero shot at the end with Absolutely. him on the horse and sort of everyone survives yeah. miraculously, well, except the director dude, but. Yes. <laughs> But then that comes back to the Jaws thing, right? Like the fact that Dreyfus and um, oh, Blanken now, right? I two. mean, two two of them survive. Yeah, the Jaws, Shaw's the only one. Robert Shaw's the only one who doesn't. Right, the, the guy, the old like sure. grizzly veteran. <laughs> that also is very and almost that bit when he runs up on the um, what's his name? Something Wincott. Who plays him? Um, just saw it. Michael Wincott. Oh yeah. Um, who plays Antlers Hoist I believe his name is when he like takes the camera off and does the basically the independence day hello boys I'm back <laughs> moment is pretty much what I got out of that sure yeah moment and it has that essence of um, independence day weirdly in there yeah I think but it- even just that shot you they probably replicated that shot not not to the same extent that the whole thing blows up but the saucer on top, like that whole thing. I found the film more entertaining than any. Like I've out of the three, this is what I'm saying from a political right. dive. At least the analog you're talking about, I couldn't pick it apart from the characters are trying to tame nature, right? And like Jupiter's character, played by Stephen Yoon, yep. is a child that has suffered trauma mm. and has sort of never moved on from that trauma and is fixated with with that as- aspect yet is trying to replicate the thing that led to such a dire incident. It yeah. doesn't correlate to me. In fact, it actually was quite... Jupiter's whole arc sure. didn't make a lot of sense to me. Okay. Um, Yoon's character. Like, he's playing a good character, and I find the the trauma f- aspect very fascinating. Mm. But... Um, and the, 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 I do like the sort of twist reveal why he's acquiring the horses. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are things to like there. What I don't understand is is what where the the correlation between sure between his, the, the childhood trauma and, and then where almost like replicating now. that. Yeah, um, I think because I I definitely saw those elements of like the inability to obtain beasts. Like I think that that's absolutely in there, and that plays into the sort of the animal cruelty for um, observation and entertainment, especially with with Gordy and the fact that they've put him in this hostile set situation for our enjoyment, you know, but like, you know, being in a zoo, for example, and then eventually he lashes out and, and he doesn't actually end up killing the guy. I thought that was interesting because she's there at, um, at Stephen Yun's uh, mm. presentation, which I thought was interesting that not only does she survive, but she's got a, a picture of her own face on the shirt, mm. hiding her real face. I think that's quite, um, interesting visual there. But the idea of, being unable to obtain nature 
and understanding that okay, this obviously does tie into the cloud villain, the um jean jacket, I think they call it. Yeah. And that it is it's not a saucer, but it is a beast to be tamed or or, or um killed, I guess. And you can you know, see the parallels there with them shooting Gordy in the back of the head. I mean that's a great scene. Yeah. Sort of the follow up to that that big massacre that, that he goes on, Gordy. But that I think there was just a lot of key points there that I didn't quite see fit because a lot of what Jordan Peele's talking about and he he's given a lot of quotes about how he wrote this in a time when he felt like cinema was falling apart so he made it this big spectacle but then also to be a commentary on spectacle and the human race sort of being unable to un- not understand but so essentially a- to look away from horrible spectacle from horrible things happening in a spectacular way. This is where I compare it to the Steven, uh, Steven Spielberg thing. The Twilight Zone movie, I think it was 1982 when they okay. shot it, horrific on-set deaths on that film. There was a big helicopter stunt with... Um, I'll quickly get his name because I'm forgetting it. It's uh, Vic Morrow and two ch- children, six and seven, doing this big stunt. And the plane literally decapitates him and kills him. And it's all on the internet. You can watch that footage right now. It is so horrible to watch that. But there is something in our human nature that just can't look away mm-hmm. from horrible things like that or trying to make a mask to hide from the horror of that thing. I think that's a lot of what Stephen Yoon's character is doing where he's sort of masking the trauma almost with self-appreciation. It's when he's going on about the SNL skit and how they parodied his real life story. I thought that was really fascinating and showing him burying those feelings. I mean, I think some of those things do make sense, but in terms of this idea of big, horrible spectacle, you can't look away from. And then these onset animals that need to be tamed or can't be tamed or must be put down. And then the cloud spotting, the, the turning a cloud into an actual villain. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are all great ideas on their own. I don't know how well they all connect together. I thought, it was definitely his most Kaufman-esque film in that regard. Get Out, and this is the through line between his films, Get Out is one big con- concise idea mm-hmm. that's explored and unveiled very carefully throughout a very you know, tight plot and script. Get Out, sort of the more conventional horror of the three, but also is a very um, you know simple horror twist in a narrative that's filled with tons of little goodies and Easter eggs and things in there that sort of enhance the idea. This film feels like just a bunch of ideas very loosely tied together. And, I mean, that made for an inferior viewing experience. Okay. Would you say that this all makes sense now, this idea of not being able to look away from spectacle? Because I don't know if I got that from this film. Yeah, and, I mean, I think I can see... I mean, there's definitely the overt thing that the animal doesn't attack you unless you look it straight in the eye. Right. So, like the Simpsons. <laughs> Just don't look. And Just I think that look. it does definitely plays into it, especially when, you know, this animal that's caused so much carnage and, and death and mm. destruction and we're made to fear it for the whole film is left with this ethereal death scene. It's mm. not abrupt like it is in Jaws where it's just putting a, a, gas, a gas tank in or an air tank and yeah. shooting it and the spectacle comes with the gory 
bits of the shark falling yeah. down. Whereas in this, it's more beautiful. The, the it, explosion. It's an elegant mm. beauty, and and the death is not even the body doesn't come lashing down to earth. It actually just rests mm. in the clouds, and. I think that that ethereal nature in that last bit when, um, uh, oh, what's her name? I think it's M. They just call it M. When, yeah, she's like cranking the, the well oh, yeah. Polaroid <laughs> and it's this big spectacle and it's led down to these, and it has a good pace to it, but it's definitely not clear i mean you had you had to break it down for me to get that uh, right. for me i found the film entertaining if a little long that's about what i got sure i liked the last set piece i liked the monopoly like oh um, uh, yeah they're, they're planting the, out there that's I, and i like the ensemble cast the quartet mm. uh, when they're all assembled together it would be nice to see um hoist come in maybe a little earlier yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, man, what a voice, boy! <laughs> a lot of them have great. I mean, sexiest voice in life. Keith David has a damn sexy voice. They killed Ooh. him. They killed him right at the beginning. I mean, <laughs> and, and to be honest, I think the buy-in was a little weak. I think okay. the Keith David death was so abrupt that it was like maybe the stake should have been more revenge based that they were trying to get back at this creature after mm. discovering it was a creature. That that is a good. I don't, I don't know if like. You know, well, revenging my father, but you're right. Like more emphasis on the death of their father, yeah. Because and then their, their namesake are going to die off with their their dying and, business. And M and OJ seem to be very lukewarm on their their father, their relationship with their father, and yep. even their relationship to this business. That yep. that and there there's some dialogues like M talks about being offered to train a horse, but doesn't, and definitely feels like she got pushed away from the family business because she Mm. was a woman, but they don't really explore that very much. And Mm. the the problem is in the first act, there are a lot of interesting things. We don't really know why OJ is the way he is apart from him being stoic and quiet because he's stoic and quiet. And that's Mm. fine. You don't always have to launch into everyone's backstories, but we don't really understand. I don't think the relationship between OJM and their father that Mm. much because he dies so quickly. And apart from a few sporadic OJ flashbacks where he's almost just living, giving these fortune cookies of knowledge about beasts not being able to be tamed. Mm. We don't get much. And like you said, the, the family business thing is such a hallmark introduction. Well, it's so perfectly introduced that it, it's just shocking to me that they don't. that's not the through line for their motivation. And you think when they're talking about that their great-great-grandfather's the first... African American writer and the first guy mm. on film, and even the the film starts with the footage. Yeah, yeah. You think, man, this must have some storybook resonance. And apart from the end where OJ's writing and he gets his hero pose, and I was, I like, guess that's how you tie the visual. You rise him on the horse replicates the original footage that they referred to. I I'm, get that, and the and the Django reference. Yeah. But like you said, I think. You can't really care for Daniel Coulier's character because he's introduced as stoic, sure. I think he's sort of quiet and reserved. Like, he's, he's a bit nervous and shy around the crew people. He's not very smart. And I don't say that... Like, well, he's smart. He's crafty. Mm. 
But he's like not got a, like a very strong business mind because he's selling all these horses to keep the business afloat, but doesn't really have any genuine idea of how he's going to buy them back from dupe. M's definitely the more charismatic one. Sure. And, and But it's like these character traits of he's shy, she's charismatic and, and extroverted, he's introverted. Like, do those play into any sort of arc that they have by defeating the monster? Not really. Like... They survive. They discover yeah. there's a monster and they learn how to kill the monster. It's very straightforward. And, and I think like him sacrif- seemingly sacrificing himself to let M run away on the on the motorcycle, that that's not the same character trait as being shy. Like that those aren't those correlate, then that's not a character. The arc. the Oprah money shot arc, the incentive mm. arc to enable this, this story of yeah. Oh, we need this very famous cinematographer because he's the guy who can get the impossible shot. Right. And then they achieve that. Because I remember watching as the chase, I'm like, this is such an elaborate thing, and I actually really like how it's paced. I love the craftiness of the plot. Like, you're right, like the Monopoly pieces, the mapping out, and and the way they film it, the the old-timey film camera. Because it plays out really well like Jaws does, where it's like, it's actually this really slow drop in tension, Mm. but they're just out in the boat. And then out of nowhere, (laughs) they spark in action. But the action's not quick and over quickly it's an elongated battle with the shark Mm. it's got different sections yeah and Shaw doesn't die in that until towards the end and then there's a there's another relief where we think Dreyfus has been killed and then the shark gets killed like it it ebbs and flows it's a good 25 minutes Mm. of screen time and and this I don't mind that they break it down but then it's like his his reason to go up on the hill is that he wasn't happy with the shot which is almost laughable because he gets the shot clearly <laughs> and he's like no 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 i got to get this suicide shot for some reason which it's very then, yeah he sort of has this big religious back death cuz angel basically like the the original camera that was running is now useless cuz the animal you know this this cloud beast comes over and mm. sweeps everything up and Angel survives by craftily wrapping himself in barbed wire. And I gotta say as well, but that then I, has no resonance yeah. in the rest of the story. He's out. I gotta also mention that I don't remember the scene in Jaws when a TMZ reporter in a big reflective helmet came in for I no reason. I do not understand. Oh my god, that is the perfect example of just wedging an idea in there without any fluidity or purpose. Like there's purpose, but like I, it again. This is where Kaufman comes in. I feel like I've just Kaufman can get away with putting the most ridiculous abstract ideas into his films and the audience has that expectation of working and, and it into the to story. To be honest, it, it doesn't surprise me, you know, they're out, they're out in the hills and stuff and then there's all these people that have gone missing. Mm. And they do make a, a very, when the, the plan's going, they're like, we need to do this quickly because other people are going to come and start asking questions with cameras and they're not going to methodically think out what we're thinking out. They put that line in there but then a TMZ Chrome Dome guy rocks mm. up, and we don't really Chrome know. <laughs> Bloody, yeah. uh, what's it? Daft Punk rocks yeah. up, <laughs> and basically just oh creates an obstacle for no reason other than they needed an obstacle because they had thought this plan out too well. Like it wasn't the case of the shark jumping the gun and they weren't ready. Yeah, and they're in this rickety old boat, and it's just the sharks taking a chunk out of the boat because the boat's crap it's no no they've actually set this up perfectly mm. 
Like, like the idea of them stealing a car batteries and one of the inflatable tube men. Yeah. I was like, I believe that because yeah. they've stolen a bunch of That's car batteries. That's great. It's great visuals that they're all spread out. Like, it's great production design. It's great cinematography. I love like, all of that Like, him having stuff. to go and, like, hotwire that. I'm like, mm. I'll buy into that because that's not contrived to me. They've stolen a bunch of car batteries. Car batteries die all the time. Right. But some TMZ dude rocking up for no reason, apart from maybe that electric bike joke of him getting yeeted. Oh, yeah. Like... It, it's set up for like yeah like these great visuals and I gotta say the whole sequence in terms of the whole film shot in IMAX and um, just gorgeous visuals all around especially the way that sequence is built and edited and together to give that I like valley, it on its own to give that valley so much character mm. like to have a story pretty much essentially set in this one location for 70-80% of the runtime, they use every square inch of it and I yeah. love that well, I just love that even in the opening, you know, scenes where we know there's some sort of tension building. We don't know what the danger is yet. It's about, I went into this film pretty blind. So I knew there was something to do with clouds and in the sky, but I didn't know exactly what to expect from this film. So it's cool that these tension shots where he's, you know, brushing the horses and there's something going on. Yeah. I like that they're these big wide vista shots. You can see so much of the background because the fret is this giant sky-wielding fret. So yeah. I, I loved that, and I love the way it's all shot. But but to go back to the ending, I think if they wanted to get this idea in of like a TMZ reporter who, you know, when he, ba- he I guess he breaks his leg or whatever, he's he's incapacitated, he can't get up, and he's mm. going to be eaten by this thing. And his focus is film me, film me like about to get eaten by this thing. Could they have not just given that like idea or that arc to one of the established characters? Because not only does that sort of condense all the things you have to do in that scene. Say, for example, it is... Is it Angel? Yeah. Yeah, Angel. Say it is Angel who, like, has this epiphany of, like, wanting to be involved in this big spectacle, even at the risk of himself being eaten. Wouldn't that be better than just having a random character come out of nowhere and then delivering that idea? Instead, do it to one of your established characters who then, when he gets eaten, it's like, oh, the stakes are even higher now because we're we're killing off main characters. Yeah, it's almost... They pulled away from killing off Angel because, unfortunately, he has no... Mm. he has no um, real final resolution in the plot. He's involved in the final climax and he survives, but we don't see him at the end. And to be honest, it the final shot when OJ's standing there, and mm. like that's actually emotionally, like we have resonance to that. These siblings that haven't really agreed along the way, they've sort of, sure. they've, they've, they've never been at each other's throats, but they've never been on the same page, but they do care about each other. We get that emotional feeling when she sees... She cares more about seeing her brother alive than the money shot. Like, that's right. clearly important because mm. she leaves it to be printed. She doesn't yeah. wait for it to She doesn't to immediately it. grab it and like, oh my God, here we her, go. Her amazing reaction isn't because she's accomplished. It's because she sees her brother alive because she realizes that's the most important thing. And then it comes then we're very quietly tying in that, like you said, that family legacy thing. Creating that family pride is mm. not in the name or in the spectacle of they were the first to be um, on film. But it's the fact that, you know, it's that they're the fact that they're close and they look after their ranch because it's in their family. And that's Mm. what matters the most that they manage that business. Sort of protecting the farm, the business and each other in that way. Yeah. But it, but it, that's us pulling that from one shot. Right. That arc that really doesn't get addressed for the whole no, film. I don't think it's established well enough. 
I um, really don't. There's this idea of fame, and that's what this that's literally what Wikipedia says. Their quote is motivated by a desire for wealth and fame. And it's like I just don't understand why I set up a family legacy and then have both characters agree to sell horses, you know, to sort of dumb down the business mm-hmm. or, or downsize the business, I guess, but then have it all based around wealth and then not repeatedly reinforce that idea when there's a giant monster flying around eating people. With that kind of spectacle, you need to remind the audience of that uh, that motivation, yeah. especially when it's kind of weak motivation already. And i got to say, you know, to your point of the Angel character sort of just surviving without real any substance, i got to say that uh, there is a quote. I thought I wrote this quote down. I didn't. But basically, they came out and said that um, that Brandon uh, Parley, para, can't, I'm sorry, I'm getting the pronunciation incorrect there, but he basically convinced them to unkill his character. In the original script, he did die. And mm. he said something about the heroic ending of it, where you're right, sort of the Django shot at the end and they, they come out alive and victorious, that he should be a part of that and that could leave potential for a sequel, which Jordan Peele and executives at Universal eventually agreed with him and kept his character alive. I don't like this. I really don't like that no. he survived. It just felt... I don't know, it just felt too much. Like, if you look at Jaws, there's a relief in the characters that do survive. Yeah. And instead of feeling relief for his character, I wasn't all that upset when he when I thought he died in the first place, but I, I was just questioning the stakes of the scene. I was like, oh, well, I guess everyone just sort of survives. Everyone else in the, in the crowd, in the audience, they all died immediately in that scene, and it yeah. was awesome. But I guess all our heroes survive because they're our heroes. You know what I mean? Is this... So the, the argument f- is that mm. she manages to, M manages to get the attention of the beast mm. before the, the the sucking happens, right? Is that that's what's implied? I, you mean when she's driving around the motorcycle? Yeah. Like she gets his the beast's attention before Coulier is swept or OJ is swept away. I guess so, yeah. Because we don't. I guess we don't see him get swept away. Yeah. So that's what I got from that. And as soon as that happened, I was like, he's gonna live. Like. You don't, because you think if this character's mm. dying, they're gonna make it like sl- like they're gonna milk it like sure. it's gonna be. I see a slow mo wide shot of him being ported up on mm. his horse. Yeah, they would make like a big a real, deal out of it. The money shot is his death shot. Yeah, sort of thing like that's how if he dies in that scene, the money shot is him dying yeah. or getting ported up. Yeah. I I yeah. And I, I guess in hindsight, it's like, yeah, they, they didn't show his death, so it, it, evidently he was going to come back. But I'm on the same token. If you look at another horror film like Alien, how many people survive that film? One person. One, One person survives. And that could have been M in this in this, uh, in this this version of, yeah. of the Alien retelling, if you want to call it that. I just, I don't know. I felt like that would have been more satisfying than just, oh, everyone's miraculously heroic and alive. Mm. And uh, that was obviously the very inc- clear intent for Jordan Peele and, and co, except for the fact that he had to get convinced to save more characters than he initially wanted to kill. You know, a film that he wrote, produced, and directed himself. Yeah. But I don't know. I just... I didn't think it was as satisfying as it could have been if, if, if it really had just been like a complete fight for survival that only M stood out with. And I like the idea of her using... I, I guess that lighting trick is to get I'm actually not quite sure what she was doing because she clearly wasn't intending to take photos. She was she was too distracted by a different goal. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of like 
during her fight for survival, she accidentally captures footage of it. I like that idea. And I don't mind that it just sort of ends there because that is very alien-esque. That it just sort of ends once the threat is defeated. There's no, like, epilogue after that. Yeah. I like those, again, those individual ideas, but I just don't think it was all fluent enough. Even, you know, you were saying earlier with that flashing well and even the reflection bowl that they use on the horse at the start of the film and then the TMZ reporter has a reflection bowl. Like, that doesn't really have much thematic metaphorical purpose it's a jordan peele film i thought there was going to be so much substance to that and it serves nothing but complete functionality of you know the reflection and looking something in the eye Mm. the tameability of a base like it's a very functional purpose that all of those things serve even the film cameras like it's all very functional yeah i there's not a lot of extra interpretation from that so i think in terms of his wider film collection i just think jordan peele this is his simplest film in a lot of ways and i don't know i mean like you said it's still an enjoyable blockbuster and it very much intended to be that in a ch- in addition to this wild mm-hmm. wilder commentary but i just don't think the commentary was nearly as fluent as he's done in the past so jake mm. what was your highlight scene um there's still many scenes i really liked um i think the for example when the the source is on top of the house and like all the blood and pieces of of the audience are like spilling down on the staircase and you can't really see the color of it being red until the lightning hits like i think that stuff's so cool just the iconography and the look of it all my highlight scene has to go to like i was saying earlier when ricky is they're sort of in the gordy's home uh replica room if you will and he's talking about how people have spent like $50,000 just to spend a night in this room, and there's like this big cult following behind it. Um, but again, the way that he was very clearly masking trauma by highlighting and praising the comedic actors in the SNL skit about this moment that he traumatically lived through. And I just thought it was so clever, the way that he performs that, Stephen Yeun, and the way they, they never cut away from his monologue. They never cut to... I think there's like maybe a split second they cut to but it's not like we see the SNL skit. He's just describing it. And I really like the confidence in just letting an actor monologue. For I, I, I like that scene quite a bit. There you go. Mm. What about you? I I, I do like the final um, climactic thing. With mm. it. it does have its problems, but it, it has moments that are really, really quite awesome. I, I like the horse riding and... and, and Sometimes the fluidity of it. Mm. Um, uh, I like the montage of setting everything up. I think oh, yeah, all the cameras st- and everything. Yeah, we really start to see this like sort of group assemble, and I, I really quite like that. I like that his homemade camera has an IMAX logo on it. It's <laughs> <laughs> very true. That was very funny. Um, That's great. Oh, yeah, I, I'd probably say that. I think the. That has to probably be the strongest scene for me, I'd say, yeah. Um, I think uh, that whole night sequence of how they survive the monster yep. is, is quite like cool, and the, mm. the, the Coulier car stuff. and oh, and then the, the, the statue, horse statue falls through the, the windshield. That's great. I like the intrigue, the, the building of intrigue mm. and, and that they have when they're trying to investigate the alien and sort of the discovery that the cloud's not moving is, is a very inventive way of, of masking an alien. 
Yeah, I will say as well, before I forget, there is a great quote from Jordan Peele about him on clouds in general and like shooting clouds or making clouds sort of mm. villainous. It reminds me of The Happening a little bit where you're making this almost invisible entity an enemy. Mm. It does not work in The Happening very well at all. <laughs> but he did say, the beauty of the skies in Frawling, the first movies in a way, every now and then you'll see a cloud that sits alone and is too low and it gives this vertigo and this sense of presence with a capital P. I can't describe it, but I knew if I could bottle that and put it in a horror movie, it might change the way people look at the sky. And... I can't say that I was looking at the sky in fear and terror leaving the <laughs> cinema, but I think a lot of people actually have, or at least are more cognizant about, you know, the scary vastness that is our sky and the clouds that inhabit it. And I do want to get, I don't have a lot of, I had a lot of negative things to say about this film. I don't even know if I'm going to give it, I, ha- I haven't scored it because I don't know what score to give it yet. But I will say, I think he did that masterfully. The way it was shot and the way they inhabit the clouds and, mm. I just thought that was really wonderful. Um, to go off your point of just the, the way yeah. they set up the fret and the fear. Absolutely. And I love the opening scene. I know you weren't a big fan of it because it kind of immediately removes an important character. I assume you could have made that work and kept the opening scene as is. I thought the opening scene was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Great build of suspense. But but anyway. Jordan Peele's Nope is currently out in cinemas near you. Speaking mm-hmm. of cinemas, Jake! Yes, what is new to cinemas and streaming platforms that is this me. week? Not a lot. Like we said, we're going to lament the finale of Better Call Saul over on Stan tomorrow, which is very, very upsetting. I will talk... I mean, this is it. I've sort of talked about Better Call Saul in dribs and drabs over the last, mm-hmm. well, years on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I think next week I'm going to go out all out and just talk about why in a general sense I love the show. Unless mm-hmm. the ending sucks. But I think it says something that I've not once ever thought, oh God, what if they screw up Better Call Saul's ending? Never once did I have that fear. So I'm pretty confident. Not even once. Not even once, bro. <laughs> Day Zeke, did I ever think about them stuffing up the Better Call Saul ending? No. Nope. <laughs> not even remotely. Nope. Coming to binge, you got the Westworld Season 4 finale. I believe it's out right now as we're speaking. So no waiting on that one. On Disney Plus, you got She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, series premiere. You excited, Zeke, for She-Hulk? Can't say I am. Hulk, but a girl. She's also green. Yeah, I mean, this this show sort of sparked the whole um, CGI overworked um, controversy that's happened with, with Marvel and Marvel VFX. So, yeah, I'm curious how it looks. <laughs> I the people have looked at these trailers and be like, this looks like a terrible show. <laughs> so we shall see. But um, that is coming out. You've also got the Beauty and the Beast, uh, 1991 and 2017 versions, and Tangled sing-alongs. Are you gonna you're gonna sing along to these, Zeke? You gonna watch them? Let it go, Jake. Let it. I will. Okay. The Frozen ones also, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> coming to Netflix, you got Look Both Ways, which shows two parallel realities, one in which a college graduate, Natalie, becomes pregnant, and the other where she pursues a career in Los Angeles. This could go so wrong so quickly. Oh, yeah. this-, <laughs> this could go nah, really never wrong. never really, or bit. sometimes always. I know, I know. Oh, man. This is such a hard, like... Well, it's funny because the message is literally in the trailer. The trailer, I watched it because I have to see what tone they're going with this. And it's very cheesy, very like, you know, oh, love is, love will save us all sort of vibes. But it does end with the line, it's not one moment that defines your life. It's all of them. 
It's like, why watch the movie then? You just told me what the driving, the answer to the driving question. Yeah, it's sort of like that. Uh, I just sport it for our audience as well. Is it? Is it Gwyneth Paltrow movie, the Sliding Doors film, where it's like she gets the train oh, right. and in one scenario she's like successful and happy, but in a not loving relationship. The other one, she's in a loving relationship but dies, like because she didn't <laughs> catch a train or catch a train. Like. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how else can you possibly end that film other than, like, she's happy in both lives or you're going to piss a lot of people off one way or another. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a loaded movie, right? Like, yeah. when you hear a logline like that, you're like, well, they're going to piss someone off. <laughs> <laughs> Very tight rope they have to walk there. And also coming to Paramount Plus, you go Orphan First Kill, the long-awaited sequel starring Isabel Furman. I haven't looked any of the... I loved Orphan, the original yeah. one. Um, I have no idea what the hell they're going to do because now she's not a little girl anymore, I don't think. <laughs> and this is a prequel. So, so with that previous film, you'd have to say the safe option is she's happier with a kid. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I love you still on look still both on. ways. <laughs> don't right? care for like, Orphan. There's no way the not having a kid one is the happier life. That would be such a funny message, though. <laughs> Honestly, in my opinion... Turns out it's a pro-abortion movie. No, no. I would oh just say God. it's an accurate 21st century film. If Yeah. So if it's her getting pregnant or her not getting pregnant... Right. And they went, oh, the one where she doesn't have a kid is the one where she's happier. <laughs> That's kind of the perception of the new generation. New generation, oh, most people no. don't want to have kids. Like yeah, no, that, I'm not even touching the, the well, political that's, aspect. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, solely talking about this film about... has to touch the political aspect. Yeah, it, does, it, does. it does just simply by that logline. That's well, what I'm saying. I've this never seen Orphan, so I'm 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 still stuck on that. Oh, so. fair enough. Well, I I love the original Orphan, so I am stuck on Orphan. But we shall see. I do I no? I ran out of Paramount Plus. We'll see. We'll see if I want to jump into that and come into cinemas. Filmed at Byron Bay, we have Boosh and Rocket which sees a young father go on the run for drug dealing with surf gangs, and which he's now in tow with his son, who believes he is on a magical holiday. It's Point Break on drugs. <laughs> yeah, filmed at Pirate Bay. That's a By- Byron Bay. Jeez, Pirate Bay. Mm. That's a whole other movie right there. Down the road from Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Crimes of the Future is the new David Cronenberg film. Stars Vito Morganson, Lee Sajewitz, I believe is how you pronounce her name, and Christian... Kirsten, Christian, Kirsten, Christian Stewart. It's Kirsten Dunn's Christian Stewart. I always, always get those mixed up. Uh, and it is meant to be a very messed up exploration of the human species and the metaphor- metamorphoses. My goodness. Now, I will say, I've heard a lot about this film. It's obviously meant to be very, like, intense body horror, which I... Part of me is like, again, it goes back to that, like, Twilight Zone, intrigued by horrible spectacle and, and bad... Uh, uh, bad miracles as they, it goes back to that it's part of why i like love body horrors mm. secretly but you know vigo mortensen came out and talked crap talked some smack about julia decanu's titan and i'm like whoa mate watch it buddy what did he say i oh, basically just said like it doesn't stand a, a candle against like cronenberg's other films and i'm like come on mate come on let's see i'll bet to town on this a bat yeah, I can't say I've town. ever put myself through the hole of the fly. I've watched parts. Oh my god, the flies! That I that was a film I was very young, maybe nine or maybe even eight, 
and channel surfing on TV. And I watched like the last half of The Fly and that scarred me for life. But I would love to watch it again. Yeah, I'm just looking through his... uh... His filmography. I don't think I've seen anything. Well, it's ironic because he actually did another film called Crimes of the Future that apparently has nothing to do with this new film he made called Crimes of the Future. Which is odd. It's so funny, you hear the name, but yeah, I just haven't brought myself to... I mean, 90% of people just know the name from Rick and Morty. (laughs) The Cronenbergs. Oh, goodness. Oh, no, I have seen... I've seen Eastern Promises. Oh, there you go. That's been onto it. I was going to say, he's done something with Viggo Mortensen before. Right. Eastern Promises. There you go. That's why he's done multiple films with him. A Dangerous Method also did that. There you go. All ties together, Zeke. Unlike the bodies in this body horror film. They don't tie it together so much. Yeah. Maybe they are with, with tape and, and, and staples. I'm really Is, that, uh, is that all we watched? Is that all we've got for this week? No, we've got a couple more things. Okay. Um, good luck to you, Leo Grande Goes Wide. We have a new Dragon Ball Super movie. I think it's called Superhero. I think Dragon Ball Super, like the series is done, but they're doing the movies now, I think. I think that's the idea. And finally, an encore screening of the original Blade Runner at Palace Cinemas this Friday. And I think I saw it on Hoyt's website. This is off the cuff, so excuse me, everyone. But I think they're doing a Grease encore screening um, oh, yeah. for obvious reasons. Rest in, rest in peace, Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, very sad. Australian. Yeah. Yeah. But that's it. That's all that's coming to cinemas this week. Well, no dramas. We're not catching any of those next week on the show. We are no. moving into another film. But, Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Fresh. The women in our parents' generation, they just... They were more into femininity. You know what I mean? Because mm. I think you would just look great in a dress. You but I mean, if you were... Pretty much done, actually, thank you. If it's cool, I'm just going to snag these leftovers. I don't know how you do it, Molly. Do what? Dating people. No, no. You do not need a man, okay? So don't play the games. Just be you, straight out the gate. Do you live around here? I live on aisle six. That was terrible. It was kind of terrible. What's his Instagram? I want to stalk a little bit. He doesn't have one. Say what? Yeah. Oh, no. See, that's, that's shady. Let's play a game. Tell me something you don't want me to know. I hate this. Okay. <laughs> we put all our hopes in finding happiness through someone else. Yeah. Girl, you all digmatized and I haven't even seen this dude. What's going on? I'm going to tell you, but you're going to freak out. No, this isn't happening. Yeah, it's happening. No games. Know what you wanted? It's about giving. Giving yourself over to somebody. Becoming one forever. That's love. It's a straight girl's fantasy come true, right? The horrors of modern dating. A scene for the eyes of a young woman who is battling to survive her new boyfriend's unusual appetites. Stars Daisley, Edgar Jones, and Sebastian Stan. This came out a few months ago. This sort of went under the radar for us. So, uh, time to backtrack. Yeah. Time to see what all the fuss was about. Speaking of, like, 
I don't know if this is going to be body horror in the same vein as a Cronenberg film or yes. or a, or a Decanu film, but but a good little segue we just did unintentionally there. Absolutely, I like it. No worries. Well, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with 